Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm your regular co-host Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, we're back after a break, which is all my fault, but how are you? I am well. I'm recording in a far, far overheated room, um, which is a common problem with this podcast. So I might have to adjust the heating at some point. But um, yeah, we'll get fired up today, man, because we are doing that part of the year where we try and sort of churn through as many movies as we possibly can to fill out kind of end of year lists and that sort of thing. So I think you're very much in the same boat as me where you've got a load of things that you want to talk about sort of now and probably to the end of December uh, yeah absolutely it's that kind of time of year where you try and play catch up and go where can I see all these films that, I've, that are all, all these end of the year lists that I haven't managed to get to so yeah it's that time of year certainly when you try and play catch up so um, yeah totally totally with you on that one Pete and then also the back end of this year seems to be front look seems to be heavily loaded with really good releases as well like con- considering we've sort of been I think we've both bemoaned the 2019 is not a great year for film and then you've got stuff like the late obviously you've got Irishman coming out which we're going to talk about later and then the marriage story's just dropped uh there's a new Star Wars film coming up it seems to be like heavily this end of the year has been heavily loaded with with what seems to be well on the face of it are very uh, strong releases so yeah as long as yeah Frozen 2 uh which I've got to go and see at some point and Last Christmas apparently as well but they may not be such strong releases but anyway there's a lot out there you're right making (laughs) you're right and and these things are sort of coming at us from all directions as well because it's not only keeping tabs on what's coming out of the cinema but then you know with the Scorsese you've obviously got the cinematic release and the Netflix release you've got things like Marriage Story that have gone straight to Netflix uh I've caught up with a film this week uh, Atlantics from Matty Diop which is exclusively being released at least here on Netflix and that's in a lot of people's top 10 of the year list and if you're not paying attention these things will pass you by so we're trying to keep on top of everything we promise you that much and that means that this week we're going to push in another top five the top five for this week will be top five action films of 2019 more on that in due course but uh, needless to say it maybe hasn't been an absolute vintage year in terms of uh, (laughs) action at the cinema and elsewhere Uh, having said that we're going to have all the normal elements of the show in place aside from in the foyer we're going to run straight through the foyer and we're going to get into to popcorn movies because we want to talk about films and films that we've been watching and that's kind of the lifeblood of the show of course we'll have coming attractions in due course which will be things releasing this week at the cinema and elsewhere and then at the end of the show we're going to have a feature of the new Scorsese which uh, of course is The Irishman and we'll finish up with credits as we always do giving credit to something from the world at large. Um, Paul let's jump then not into the foyer as we usually would but into popcorn movies for this week if you're happy to do that. Yeah absolutely yeah Uh, so the first one uh, that I wanted to talk about this week is I've caught up with the latest film from Jennifer Kent who directed The Babadook I thought this had disappeared from release schedule full stop and suddenly it magically appears Um, it's out it's on limited release at the moment you can find it on Curzon Streaming Uh, this is The Nightingale um, starring uh, Eileen Franciosi, Sam Claflin, who is an actor I normally hate, uh, and Baikal Ganabar. Um, I'm sorry if I've butchered some names there. This is um, set in 1825 in Tasma- in the Tasmanian wilderness. Um, a British officer, played by Sam Claflin here, um, treats an, an, an Irish convict terribly, um, and she's subjected to all kinds of horrific scenes. Um, she doesn't take too kindly to this, um, and basically goes on goes through the outback to get her revenge on this British army officer um yeah 
it's a dark film, Pete, I'll, I'll be honest, and I think most people will be aware there's some controversy around one particular scene of this film. Um, I can see why there's controversy about it. It is an absolutely horrendous, um, the, it's a horrendous rape scene, and it's not just that that happens in this scene that's, that caused, caused a lot of the controversy. So this film is absolutely not for the faint of heart. Um, what I will say is I don't think the scene is gratuitous unnecessarily. This is not some kind of, uh, certainly not some kind of, um, exploitation film in the manner of was it revenge i think that came out earlier in the year um or i spit on your grave or that kind of thing this is undoubtedly a hard-hitting very well written and well-directed drama um and the you know this this the horrible events that happen to the um to the female to the female protagonist uh do are absolutely there to make a point of just how horrifically uh, the British Army officers treated people in Tasmania at the time. So I don't have a problem with the content of this film. I thought the film, for the most part, was very, very well done. Um, There's a couple of clumsy-ish dream sequences that I didn't particularly like, but overall I thought this was, yeah, I thought it was a really strong piece of work. And it featured a good performance from Sam Claflin as well, I have to say, which I think is probably the first time the first time I've said this. And from Eileen Franciosi as well, I've not seen her or anything before, I thought she was fantastic. Yeah, it's not an easy watch, um, but it is a very, very well put together film and one that I can, you know, pick your time when you watch it, certainly pick who you watch it with, uh, but there's a lot to recommend here. And I think it also marks out, I think for me it's, it's interesting as well, because Jennifer Kent could have gone down down the sort of more overt supernatural horror route uh, as she did with the Babadook even though it's not necessarily a film about that uh, but she's taken a different track here so I think it shows her as a versatile director uh, and it is more than worth your time uh, if you can find it uh, that's The Nightingale directed by Jennifer Kent nice yeah I know you well we were both pretty high on, on the Babadook but you in particular so th- for you this sort of lived up to expectations in terms of what you were hoping for from Jennifer Kent I guess oh yeah absolutely yeah I thought this was yeah, yeah. it's a really 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 strong film Nice. Um, first for me this week then is uh, an odd one. This is Greener Grass, which we previewed on the show in Coming Attractions just a couple of short weeks ago. Uh, it is co-created and co-directed by uh, Jocelyn DeBoer and uh, Dawn Lueb. the the less you know about this probably the better going in but it's this sort of really off kilter really bizarre um sort of social commentary comedy um about two women who are obsessed with bettering one another and they live in this kind of dream state or like you know like a sort of uh, dreamlike america as depicted in something like blue velvet Mm. where you know just beneath the surface something sinister is going on it's very much that that, but cast as this bizarro comedy. Uh, we open with a sequence where the uh, two women's kids are playing, um, uh, like, what, what do they call it in America? You know, little league football, okay, little league yeah. soccer, I guess. And um, at one point, one of the kids stops to yawn and it slows down the action to an absolute crawl so that we can watch <laughs> this kid yawn in slow motion. Um, during this sequence, one of the women uh, has is holding a baby that the other lady hasn't noticed she has, even though they're friends. She now has a baby. And she comments on this and then is offered the baby as a gift. And this is where we kick off the movie. Uh, It's really, really strange. It's one of those where people are going to sort of come in and maybe kick against it a little bit or think like this is just uh, strange for the sake of it. Or, you know, the bit like I felt about something like uh, what was the the movie that you really liked that was, you know... um, The Greasy Strangler. uh, 
The, yeah, you yeah. knew what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Greasy Strangler. So I didn't go for that movie and I kind of went for this one. And I think a lot of that for me is just that I found these two women just so um, magnetic and sort of entertaining, even when they're both just falling to bits during the movie. I mean, one lady in particular who starts the plot by, as much as there is a plot here, by giving away her baby, uh, basically sees her life disintegrate as the movie runs through its uh, 90 minute duration uh, to the point where she's essentially just hobbling down the road looking for somewhere to stay because she's given away all of her possessions and lost all the things she had before. Uh, somebody gets called a, a school at some point by a child which is a really standout funny line but it has to be seen in context. So much of the movie doesn't work if you took it out of the context of the world that they've created and I think it's to the benefit of the filmmakers that they if you go along for the ride, they'll kind of put you in this strange other place that is a place that I wanted to spend a lot of time in. So I really liked it. Uh, that one's Greener Grass. What have you got second, Paul? Uh, Charlie's Angels, the uh, recently released Elizabeth Banks um, re reboot of the Charlie's Angels franchise um, that we kind of said on the last show, I think, that we were hopeful might not be the complete disaster that it's been made out to be in some corners. Um, unfortunately, Pete, it mostly is. Um, I could forgive um, the predictable plot twists, the the lazy, the, the sort of the flat villains, um, the mostly average set pieces. If any of this was funny, the problem is here: the humour just is pain, painfully, painfully, painful to watch. Like painfully painful. I'm going that far with it. Um, it's just, it's just awkward to be honest. I sat there thinking, all of these people I've seen. Well, with the exception. So who have we got here? So Kristen Stewart has been much, much, much better elsewhere. Uh, Naomi Scott, I think I mentioned at the time, for me was one of the best things about the um, Aladdin uh, the Aladdin live-action version. Ella Belinska, I haven't seen anything before. Uh, Elizabeth Banks, I've seen be funnier than this. It's just painful. The, the script doesn't work. Um, the set pieces aren't great. The villains are forgettable. The story's predictable. Um, yeah, a real shame. I, I, struggled, I struggled to get through to the end of this, if I'm honest. Uh, so yeah not great believe believe the hype or lack of hype as it were with this one mm. yeah another one maybe i would put in the category of a little bit forgettable is uh, my second one for this week the report um which is a new release which i've seen because it is currently streaming i believe on netflix I want to say. Uh, this one stars Adam Driver, and again, we've previewed it on the show, and I was quite um, looking forward to it. I was quite, you know, had high hopes for the report, uh, or the torture report, because, of course, the title itself has been redacted in the way in which documents relating to American uh, CIA-involved practices in terms of the treatment and torture of terrorists were redacted. Um, that's the reference there in the title. Uh, yeah, it's about this uh, staffer, like, idealistic staffer who's played by... Uh, Adam Driver, who is leading a sort of task force in a tiny, tiny office space who are um, supposed to investigate what's actually going on in places like um, Abu Ghraib and places where uh, the detainees may be subject to tactics that might not be lawful. Um, and so what you've got is this kind of um, A to B to C sort of investigative thing. Adam Driver's perfectly good, as you would expect, but it's all a little bit sterile and it all feels like it gets to a point and then starts to um, kind of quietly 
skillfully pull some punches, perhaps. Um, I was hoping for a little bit more. Uh, Scott Z. Burns, the writer and director here, is not someone necessarily that I um, hold in sort of the very highest esteem. So Where do I know Scott Z. Burns' name bit. from? Any, anything? Uh, he, he's collaborated with uh, Steven Soderbergh on a bunch of stuff. Right, okay. And, um, yeah, has done a lot of screenwriting. And then directorially, I think there's at least one directorial credit before this. But, yeah, point being, the, the report is one of those that sort of washes over you and you can see the the makings of a really um, bracing and interesting political uh, investigative uh, piece of sort of reportage but what you get in the end just yeah is a bit forgettable and is a bit bland and is a bit blunted and that's a bit of a shame I think um, by all means check it out I mean fans of Adam Driver there's more good work to d- dive into here Annette Benning's in this thing too and I like Annette, Annette Benning quite a lot John Hamm also it's a strong cast but I mean I saw this movie like a week ago and I've pretty much forgotten it already um, and that's not you know that's not good uh, when it comes to the stuff that we review for the show so yeah that one's the report Paul what have you got next I've got another re- relatively new release. Uh, this is Judy and Punch um, from director Mira Falks, um, who I believe, well, the film's funded by Australia, so I believe Mira Falks will be Australian. I might be, I might be wrong there. Um, probably should have done my research, but I'll put it out there now. Um, this, yeah, Judy and Punch, this stars Mia Wesoskowska and Damon Herriman, who also turned up as a complete fucker in The Nightingale. So I hope he's a nice guy in real life, to be honest. Uh, but he seems to be type, making a type for himself. As ass as as assholes basically. Um, so this bait, as you might gather from the title, is loosely based around the um, the Punch and Judy uh, puppet show that everyone is probably familiar with, um, and certainly tries to turn things on its head. Um, I won't spoil too much of what happens here, um, but I. I've always said about films, I like it when things take swings and miss and try and do something a bit different than rather than take any risks at all. Um, this, at times, is a very, very dark film. Um, basically, Mia Wazowska's character, Judy, um, is beaten to near death by Punch, by the guy, the puppeteer, Dr. Punch, um, and essentially goes off and sort of disappears off and what happens, it kind of follows what happens after that. Not too dissimilar to this part of The Nightingale, in fairness, in some ways. Um, for me, the tone was a little bit all over the place. I wasn't sure whether it was too black to be a black comedy or whether it was trying to be a, a sort of dark drama. I don't think it all worked. And I felt the film was a little bit hurried towards the end. Um, but there's enough interesting stuff in here to make this one worth your time, I think. Nice. Um, Also worth the time then, I think, is the next one from me. This, again, previewed on our show, I think last week, is uh, Queen and Slim, which I realise I have to hold my hands up. I think I made a little bit of a mistake because when I previewed it, I said it was coming out over the weekend. In fact, I've only seen it because it was a secret like preview screening um, at a particular unnamed cinema chain. And I think that the official UK release is in January of next year. So not not quite yet. But there is something to look forward to if you missed it. or the first time out. Um, this one directed by Melina Matsukas, who uh, I believe to be a sort of visual artist who stepped over into directing, and I could be wrong about that. Uh, co-written by Lena Waithe, the comedy actress, and James Fry, of course, who wrote uh, A Million Little Pieces that was adapted into that dreadful movie earlier on in the year <laughs> that might come up in the in the worst of list that we'll do in due course. Uh, this one co-stars um, Jodie Turner-Smith and Daniel Kalua as a couple who 
you are, pulled over by the cops on their first date, and things take a turn. It's the very first scene of the movie, so I'm not spoiling anything, uh, because the cop ends up shot, and they end up on the run, trying to uh, sort of either clear their names or outrun authorities, or maybe both at the same time. Um, during their time on the run, there's a groundswell of support that is um, growing amongst particularly the black community who feel like the, uh, the events that occurred with this couple were actually events in which they were defending themselves as opposed to being sort of antagonists or, or were necessarily in the wrong and that they should be freed and they should be allowed to sort of go on with their lives rather than face the consequences that seem to be hurtling in their direction. The good stuff about Queen and Slim is that you get this developing romantic bond between the two leads because of course they've had this first date broken up. Uh, initially they have some resentments towards each other and the way that they acted. They're working through a lot of tension. They're obviously scared, uh, petrified really of what's coming. And then you've got this, yeah, this just quietly, tenderly developing connection between the two of them, which I think is played really well. Um, I think that the just, it's hard for me to convey this without sounding a bit creepy, but like the, the, the interaction of the two physicalities of these actors, you kind of have to see mm. uh, to really know wh why I'd see that as such a positive of the movie because there, there's something really crackling about the two of them on screen, particularly uh, jo Jodie Turner-Smith, I would suggest. Uh, what I think maybe perhaps doesn't work quite so well is the movie tries to, at certain points push its uh, political agenda in a way that feels slightly jarring with the f sort of lyrical, languid flow of the action. So most of the movie is like this r like lush kind of... Um, uh, sunset uh, road trip movie in which you've got a building romance and a set of tensions but then occasionally we'll jump into a sequence that feels just ill at ease with the the, the feel of the film, for want of a better word, the sort of texture and, and feel of the film. So uh, that all comes to a head towards the film's conclusion and maybe, again, is, is played slightly less well than I was hoping, which left me a little bit more split on the movie than I thought I would be. There was a point at about the two-thirds mark where I thought, this is taking me over, like I'm in love with this movie. Mm. It's, it's just doing something very specific incredibly well, um, and, and maybe some of that potential is a little bit squandered, but definitely worth checking out. A really interesting, I believe, director, uh, directorial debut from uh, Melina Mansukas. Uh, so yeah, uh, good things to say about it for sure. Daniel Kilo, where people know, of course, from Get Out and is, is, is really good here too. So yeah, that one's Queen and Slim. What else have you got, Paul? Uh, Gremlins. I don't know if you've heard of this one, Pete. Um, this was one of two, two uh, cinematic re-releases that I got to the pleasure of seeing on the big screen this week, which is always a joy. So please keep at it, uh, Cinema Chains. Please keep them on. It's always great to see. Uh, yeah, Joe Dante directed, uh, written by Christopher Columbus, starring Zach Galligan. I went, you probably should know uh, exactly what Gremlins is by now. You should certainly know the rules to follow. Um, if you have a pet mogwai um, for sure um, yeah it's it's still a darkly entertaining comic treat um, I haven't seen it for quite a few years actually before I, before I walked into this uh, Gizmo is an incredibly incredibly cute character um, for sure the film still has a lot of charm and it's a lot darker than I remember um, yeah I wouldn't say I mean I think the 
a lot of why this film is so fondly regarded is certainly the cute characters and the practical effects. I wouldn't say this rates up there with the absolute classics of 80s cinema, in all honesty, but I still have a lot of fondness for Gremlins. I think it's a lot of fun. As I said, the um, the dark comedy the dark comedy works remarkably well, and it's a lot gorier than I remember it being. And the practical effects are pretty much timeless because they look absolutely fantastic in this. So yeah, a lot of fun and an absolute treat to see on the big screen. Uh, yeah, that's Gremlins. Nice. Um, yeah, I missed the the screening at the cinema. Unfortunately, I've seen the movie, of course, but yeah, missed out on this uh, rerun. So yeah, uh, you know what a privilege for people who got to see that again uh, because it is so beloved, as you say. Uh, one for me that I have seen though is currently streaming on Netflix. It is the documentary Hell Satan, again one that we previewed on the show. This is Penny Lane's um, follow up to Nuts, which is also available, I think, on Prime Video at the moment. Really, really good. That was the one that I popcorn movie reviewed on our show, which was about the implanting of goat testicles yes, remember, into yeah, men yeah, who, yeah. Who, who wanted to impregnate their women. Uh, well worth a look. Uh, very much recommend that one. This one is uh, its an odd thing, Hell Satan. Um, because I was so on board with Nuts, I thought, you know, I'm going to come out of this one singing its praises, and I'm not going to do that necessarily. Uh, but, but it's an interesting movie. Um, what you've got here is a group who are called uh, the Satanic Temple. The Satanic Temple emerge as a sort of initially seemingly satirical counterbalance to what is seen by the creators of that particular group as the um the failure of the separation of church and state in the United States, essentially. The idea that there's too much influence on the state from the Christian church and these people believing that that needed to be kicked against. So uh, what they do in the, the opening sequence of the movie is that they pledge their support to a, um, uh, like a, some kind of American politician who's running this campaign and they come out and say we're fully in support of this guy but of course because they are the satanic temple that's not really good publicity no. you know <laughs> uh, not all publicity is good publicity when you throw in the satanic temple and then what we get is that it seems as though at least the, the film would have you believe that the satanic temple takes on a sort of fight club-esque life of its own where divisions are, are popping up all over the United States of people who are saying we want to be a part of this movement and what this movement is about is the freedom of self-expression a freedom from the necessary um or the perceived sort of chains and binds of uh, christianity in the united states and the way in which we're going to sort of respect and try and help all people rather than you know slaughter goats and, and and have sex with virgins or whatever it is that the conservative right might think that a satanic temple group might do um but I think you get caught a little bit in a bind because there are times where uh, particularly the, the leader of the thing who calls himself Lucian Graves uh, rather brilliantly uh, <laughs> seems a little bit it, it's very much sort of like he's winking at the camera and it is um, it, it, I didn't buy for very long that this wasn't just a, sat a satirical movement that was pushing against the abuse of power and for that purpose mm, it's great. all power yeah. to them absolutely all power to them um i think the the movie at times is a little bit disingenuous when it's trying to posit that this is a real thing that's really gaining sort of groundswell support um yeah interesting characters in here uh not least uh a girl called jex blackmore who gets expelled from the satanic temple for basically right. being too evil um <laughs> which is a, an interesting thing to uh consider but yeah it's worth checking out man and it's the kind of documentary 
readily available, as I say, on Netflix that will get people talking. And, you know, you'll have an opinion about it and whether these people should be allowed to convene in the way that they do or not and what it says about American culture and sort of wider culture at large. So I think Penny Lane's an interesting filmmaker. I would say if you had to pick this or Nuts, watch Nuts as a priority because I think it is a probably a better documentary. But uh, that was Hail Satan. Any more, Paul? Yeah, another, another cinematic re-release and one that I do consider to be an absolute classic. Uh, Die Hard in the same week as Gremlins. I got to see Die Hard on the big screen, so I was spoiled for sure. Uh, yeah, um, if people should, should I imagine, are aware of the plot of Die Hard by now. Uh, Bruce Willis is incredible in it. Um, uh, Alan Rickman is even better as one of the best movie villains of all time as Hans Gruber. Um, the action set pieces are absolutely superb. Um, the re- the main reason this film works so well is, I mean, everything. It's one of those films where just everything works. Um, every time I watch it, every time I rewatch it, I'm always surprised the amount of comedy there is in here. It's actually a very, very funny film consistently. Um, all the jokes, there's some very silly gags in here. Uh, they all they all land. Um, and John McClane's fallible, and I think that's what makes this film work so well as an action film. Is that right at the end of the film, he's had the he's clearly had the shit kicked out of him, which is what doesn't work, especially in the absolutely dreadful Die Hard sequels where he just becomes a complete Superman um so yeah Die Hard I, I, we could do a whole show on Die Hard I'm not going to do it it's a popcorn movie here uh it's incredible it's an incredible film and it was an absolute pleasure to see it on the big screen uh that was Die Hard from 1988 for those of people who aren't aware of that <laughs> nice uh I've got two more and both of them are ones that I liked a lot and I try and control myself uh the first one is Atlantics which I mentioned at the beginning of the show this one is the full um I, I guess feature length directorial debut of Matty Diop who is a filmmaker who has already released um and i think like a what you would call what's that now not a short not a feature but like an hour-long film just about Uh, a short i still a short i think yeah, yeah, a long-form short, yeah. <laughs> let's say. Uh, but yeah, in this case, uh, we have a full-blown feature film running an hour and 45 minutes-ish. Uh, Atlantics is a fascinating thing. Uh, it takes place in the city of D- 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 Dakar, I should say, in, in Senegal. And what we have is uh, initially a group of workers who are working to build a sort of super city um, for private investment and being worked to the bone in order to get this project finished and that finished and then we move away from the building site and we are in the lives of a particularly a, a young man and a young woman who have a growing love affair but the woman is promised to another older man and her family believes that what she's going to do the only choice available really for her is to get married to this other guy because he can provide money and opportunity and wealth that you know her young uh, flirtation or love won't be able to at this point in the plot her younger lover disappears and we are told that he and some other guys got onto a boat and went out into the ocean to try and find a better life somewhere else and died um, and so at that point you don't know where we where we could possibly go because it felt like the big thrust of the movie was about this growing romance and what it turns into is this sort of weird um, like lyrical kind of quietly unsettling ghost story that is about love and loss but it's also about like financial inequality and it's about uh, the repercussions of treating people in a way less than they deserve to be treated 
Uh, it's a movie that I don't want to say too much more about because I think it's a bit of a treat for people who just give it the time and sort of let go and, and, and go along with, you know, the world that Matty Diop's created here. And I'm not surprised that it's popped up on a few end of year top 10 lists because it's a really interesting piece of work. Whether it'll get onto mine or not, I you know, it remains to be seen. But um, yeah, really strong. It's Atlantics. And Atlantics is currently streaming on Netflix, if I haven't mentioned that. And so there is no reason, you know, this isn't one where you have to go and dig it out for, you know, an amount of money or anything like that. If you're already on the platform, then it's there for you. Have you got another one, Paul, or shall I run straight into my final? Yeah, I want to throw some, one more into the mix, actually, which I watched last night because I've been doing my um, Star Wars catch-up in advance of um, Rise of Skywalker coming out. I've got through the prequels, which took me quite a while, as you can imagine, uh, and I picked up with Solo again, one of the spin-offs that seems to be quite derided in a lot of circles, um, and I don't really understand why. I still maintain that I had a, a fun time with this film. I said the more I watch it, the more it does have some pacing issues towards the end but I think it's a really fun enjoyable sci-fi romp with some great set pieces and some decent performances especially like uh, Amelia Clark in this I think she's great um, also Donald Glover as Lando is a lot of fun as I said the, you know the special effects are great I like the fact from a you know a fairly hardcore Star Wars fan as I would describe myself um, that it explores a side of the universe we don't get to see a lot of um, a bit more now so with the Mandalorian but um, yeah, explores the side of the universe we don't get to see a lot of, and I think it does something a little bit different. And I still think its box office was marred because Last Jedi was shit. Uh, but aside from that, uh, just yeah, Solo, I'd, I'd really quite enjoyed it, um, and I maintain that it's certainly better than all of the prequels, without a shadow of a doubt. It's not the best Star Wars film by a long stretch, don't get me wrong, but it's definitely better than the prequels, and I like it. So there we go, Pete. What have you got next? Yeah, I was just going to add to that. Uh, I don't really like Star Wars movies, as I've made clear on this show uh, many times, but I, I don't mind Solo. Uh, didn't, didn't mind it, and therefore it must be excellent <laughs> for that <Yeah>. reason. <laughs> um, I then have one more, and this is the one that I'm most excited to talk about, I would say. It is called I Lost My Body, and again, it is available right now on Netflix to stream for the this amount of money. This looks great, I have to say. I really need to get around to watching this. It looks yeah, superb. This the is uh, co-written and directed by a Parisian uh, film maker called Jeremy Clapin um, and it is a, very, a, a little bit of a thing I want to say before I get into the movie when this movie starts I think if you're anything like me in terms of how the Netflix platform defaults it's going to be overdubbed in English stop that nonsense immediately the, the film is <laughs> French and it needs to be seen in my humble opinion in the original language like so many other things that are animated or otherwise you need the original language and subtitles and deal with that you don't have to do it of course live your life how you want to live your life but I just think you're going to get a better experience even though I think people like Dev Patel and stuff are involved in the uh, English language version version of the overdub, why would you give yourself an overdub when you've got a perfectly good story told in a language that you can understand through the benefit of subtitles? Here, here, Pete. Here, here. Enough on that. <laughs> so, I Lost My Body, to very simply set it up, is the story about a severed hand that is trying to make its way across Paris to find its body again. Um, the reason for that we discover in the movie is because, in fact, I, I don't even know if I want to say why, why it is that it needs to find it. It needs to find its body. And through the course of this hand working its way across the city, we learn in flashback about the events that preceded the hand being separated 
from its body. Um, and those details relate to, uh, again, it's a theme of some of my reviews this week, I think, uh, a, a growing, uh, I can't say love affair at all, but affection from a guy towards a girl um, and the things that lead to them being able to spend time together and then maybe a couple of things that lead to them not spending time together anymore. I was absolutely blown away by this movie. It was it was one of those times, and it, it, this time of year, I suppose there are more of these times, but it was one of those times where I thought, I'm not sure if I'm in a good enough mood to give anything a fair enough appraisal, because maybe I'm mm. just feeling negative. And it was one of those films that totally turned me around, where by the last third of the movie, I just felt like lifted almost lifted from my seat and sort of my spirits were elevated in a way that I can't quite explain without having, you know, when we get back to talking about it, maybe when you've seen the movie as well, it will come across a little bit better. But it, not only is the story uplifting, the animation is absolutely beautiful. Some of the ideas and some of the creativity here on how we're going to sort of personify a hand and how this hand is going to interact with all different aspects of the world and the limitations of the way in which, of course, a hand would act actually be able to progress through the world and the sort of obstacles that would get in the way of a hand. Um, at one point it has a face-off with subway rats, which I really appreciated. And all <laughs> it has to defend itself is a lighter. But of course, because it's a hand, it can still spark a lighter and, and do a little bit of self-defense. Uh, it's a wonderful piece of work. Um, I've seen some people say it's too pleased with itself or it's not as clever as it thinks it is. And I just say bar humbug to all of that. Um, this, Yeah, <laughs> on, on the post of this movie, it says a life-affirming work and i totally co-sign that i think this is excellent and it nice i'll try and get to it this almost, week i've been meaning to get to it for the last week or so and just haven't haven't sat down in front oh, of it so, so, need to get so to totally worth it so totally it, so. worth it and it runs an hour and 21 minutes so you can you know squeeze it in of an evening um yeah just just great and uh i'll say more good things about it when it almost inevitably gets into my top 10 of the year we'll, we'll see we'll do that episode soon of course but that is the last one from me for this week paul and that is the well, the last however many from me uh, for all this week as well. So I think we've yeah, that was that was a big bumper popcorn movie section, but I enjoyed that, Pete. So yeah, no, it was good. It was good. Um, what have we got up next? Up next, we've got coming attractions where we will preview some of the releases coming this week. Uh, that will be right after this. And here we are, coming attractions for this week. You know the format. We're going to preview what's coming out over the weekend. And this week, I'm going to limit it to just three releases. Uh, there are other things coming out, of course, but we've got to be a bit selective because we want to get in both our review of the Scorsese movie and our top five for this week. So first of all, we've got Jumanji, the next level, the follow-up to the, I think, wildly successful, at least at the box office, uh, reboot of the Jumanji franchise a couple of years ago. Uh, this one directed by Jake Castan and... And starring, of course, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Jack Black, Kevin Hart, Karen Gillan, and so on. Paul, you saw the first movie. Are you excited for the second movie? Do you care? Are you going to see it at the cinema? Are you going to wait for streaming? What's going on? I will probably see it at the cinema because my wife's very keen to see it. I watched the first one only last night, in fact, and for some reason it hasn't come up on popcorn movies, which would have been quite relevant, really. Um... I don't really get all the fuss was about the original Jumanji. I say the original Jumanji. Welcome Jumanji. Welcome to the jungle. A lot of people have gone went quite nuts for it, and I, my wife especially, I sat next to her. She was laughing out loud all the way through it, and I kind of thought on second viewing the same thoughts I had before. I'd forgotten it the moment it had finished. So 
uh, yeah, moderately. I wouldn't say I'm excited for this. I think it will be fine. I think with with that cast, you're going to have some amusing moments. Um, but for me, it needs to be uh, noticeably better than Welcome to the Jungle to hit hit my radar. Really, Pete, are you excited for this? I think you shared my thoughts on on Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. To be fair, but yeah, man, like I I know that they're doing a, a new thing where sort of the characters are having to be the embodiments of other characters who are sort of older or contrasting in a funny way. So um, one of them is it Dwayne Johnson's character is supposedly Danny, Danny DeVito. DeVito. Yeah. yeah, and then. Um, Kevin Hart is uh, uh, Danny Glover, Danny Glover and, think, and so yeah. on. And you get it. Like, I've seen clips. It looks kind of amusing. Aquafina's been added to this one as well, and I like her a lot. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it'll be amusing enough. I'll go with my wife, because it's the kind of thing we might enjoy of an evening. But, you know, it, am I going to gush about it? Am I going to have a ton to say about Jumanji the next level? No, probably not. I didn't really care about the first actual original Jumanji movie, let alone two, you know, reboot <laughs> slash sequels. So... Uh, you know, good luck to them. They've got a cast of sort of, you know, marketable people together and they've got a little bit of uh, comedy writing talent behind this, I guess. So, yeah, could be good fun. And then I'll forget about it until they do the next Jumanji movie, I expect. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, second one. Oh, this is controversial, Paul. Uh, coming out over the weekend, uh, we have Black Christmas, which is uh, to the eagle eyed and eared of course a remake of the classic horror black christmas um this has already been remade (laughs) yeah this tells the story of a group of female students who are stalked by a stranger during their christmas break that is until the young sorority pledges uh sorry the young sorority pledges as they are called discover that the killer is part of an underground college conspiracy um the directing duties are handled by sophia takal i don't know a lot about her and in a lead role we have imogen poots who is fine uh any thoughts here paul uh yeah this is coming out uh it's basically it's basically kind of what i think on this one i'm you know i'm i'm a fan of horror i'm forgiving of quite trashy horror films i don't even mind some remakes i just feel that this has been done to death at this point um this feels like a shameless cash-in for the time of year they were like oh wait i would just throw out a horror film at christmas we'll just remake black christmas again um i'll be surprised if it's any good but then i've been pleasantly surprised by the child's play remake this year so and certain remakes do pleasantly surprise me so I will probably see this, in fairness, and hopefully it'll be a pleasant surprise, but I'm not holding out a lot of hope. Yeah, same. Yeah, same. If it's a a remake that can do anything even vaguely interesting with the property, then great. If it's just here, like you suggested, to maybe cash in on the time of year that we're in, then that's a little bit of a shame. Um, And the poster doesn't make things look entirely promising as far as I'm concerned, but uh, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Carrie Elwes is involved, you know. He's got a little bit of chops when it comes to horror. Uh, Yeah, we'll see. Um, Black Christmas releases on... On the 12th, which is tomorrow, Thursday, we're recording on a Wednesday. Finally, I've got a documentary entitled Aquarella. Uh, This one is all about water and ice. There is a very moody trailer doing the rounds that you can see on the IMDb or YouTube or wherever you see your trailers. Um, That is a kind of enticing, sort of beautiful, slightly enchanting thing. Um, But yeah, water and ice all around the world. Uh, akin to a sort of moodier version of an episode of planet earth or the blue planet more accurately i suppose does this appeal to you paul uh the trailer looks it looks interesting Um, i don't know a lot about it outside of the trailer to be perfectly honest so yeah i'm I'm quite yeah we'll be we'll be checking this out the trailer well it's not a film i knew anything about prior to the trailer drop-in and the trailer got me hooked so yeah 
I'm, I'm, whatever this turns out to be, uh, I will be watching it. Yeah, and it tends to give me a little bit of a guide when I do these previews, just having a quick glance at what the meta score is. You know, the, the critics and so on who've got early mm. access to the movie or have seen it in different territories. And currently, uh, Aquarella sitting at 80 meta score um, okay so yeah good, some yeah. real standout reviews there so looks promising you know anything to do with the natural world done well is something that i'd be in for so yeah hopefully we'll get to review it on the show as soon as possible and then we can tell you what we thought that brings us to the end of this uh, slightly truncated section of coming attractions for the week which means we'll be back right after a little break with our full review of martin scorsese's new film the irishman right after this So, yeah, Pete, as you so kindly mentioned before the break, um, we are back with our feature review this week, or slightly belated, so apologies on this one, uh, but we wanted to talk about it because it's a Martin Scorsese film. Um, Yeah, this is The Irishman by Martin Scorsese, which released, I believe, last week or the week before on Netflix widely, and it did have a limited cinematic one. I was lucky enough to see this in the cinema a few weeks back. Um, but main basically, it is, it's a Netflix-funded film and is one of Netflix's biggest tempo releases of the year. Um, Pete, do you want to set this one up for us? Yeah, I mean, I will I will briefly, yeah. So this one tells the story of a mob hitman played by Robert De Niro who recalls his possible involvement in the killing of Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Hoffa, of course, being a uh, famed union leader. Uh, this is very much historical and very much epic, running a full three hours and 29 minutes, as everybody who's got even a vague interest in the world of film will be well aware by now, because it seems to be all people have been talking about in relation to the Irishman yeah. over the, the couple of weeks since its release. Um, we've got lots of things to say about it, but before all of that, let's hear a little clip. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too. Even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I, I do. I do, and I, uh, I also do my own carpentry. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I understand you're a brother of mine. Yes, sir. Local 107, since 1947. Yeah. You know, uh, our friend speaks very highly of you. Well, thank you. He's not an easy man to please. Well, I do my best. So yeah, uh, you know, so starring in starring roles here, we've got uh, I think one of the one of the things that very that excited people about the Irishman, not just the presence of Martin Scorsese, was the fact that we've got uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino reunited here um for the first time not since heat there's one other film they did together that apparently was terrible but regardless we've got um al pacino and and, uh, robert de niro reunited here uh we've got joe pesci coming back out of retirement here to play to play the the lead roles in this film um the other things um that were that are kind of i think that were interesting about it and certainly we'll, we will touch on uh, later on in the review uh they're also the same actors are playing younger versions of themselves using similar de-aging technology than than we that we've seen uh in the marvel films um pete where do you want to start when when we're talking about this quite familiar territory i think for a scorsese film there's there's, like there's definitely elements i think of goodfellas in this and casino and that kind of thing certainly with some of the casting anyway pete and where where did you want to start yeah that's a big question i mean there's a lot here (laughs) i suppose for me personally where i'd start is talking as i like to do sometimes when we do the bigger reviews about expectations coming in because Mm. i think it's one of those things with the passage of time where um you almost it needs for a, a 
big name film director or a significant film director to release a new project for you to really have that first instinctual response to the release of that new project. What I mean by this is when I was sort of 18, 19, 20, 21, that kind of age, if there had been at that time, um, even, you know, so we're talking in that area, something like The Departed, right? Like a new Martin Scorsese release mm. that um, it would be reason enough to get myself incredibly worked up and incredibly excited about talking about that, you know, late into the night with friends and people interested in the topic. I think when The Irishman was being uh, sort of vaunted as this major late year release, both cinematically on Netflix, there was, for good or bad, there was little in terms of sort of big response in myself to this project. And I think I have to investigate the reasons for that. But I think partly it's because of, I, I guess, the lack of output from Scorsese over recent years and feeling like things like um, Silence that we saw not too long ago uh, very much made me aware of the fact that maybe later career Martin Scorsese's filmmaking was not something I was as interested in as I previously was. Then, of course, you've got the fact that Scorsese's going back to this gangster world um, infighting sort of territory that he's so known for. And maybe I didn't feel any huge enthusiasm for those movies anymore as a sort of genre. And so I yeah. think coming in, when we were previewing it and we were talking about it here and there... I felt this lack of expect positive expectation. And I think actually sitting through the movie, it bled into maybe some of my feelings about it. How did you feel coming into The Irishman? Like how up for this were you? How excited were you about this as a new release? Uh, very Probably the opposite, Gigi Fair. I was very excited about this as a new release. And I just think just because... You know, from what we've seen of uh, Scorsese, I think, like, whatever you think of the, the message of Wolf of Wall Street, whether you think it is, you know, with, yeah, whatever you think of, of his later output, certainly uh, Wolf of Wall Street, I would cite as an example. I found Wolf of Wall Street to be an incredibly exciting film from uh, a veteran director. It still surprises me to the day that I think Scorsese was in his early 70s, I think, when he made Wolf of Wall Street, unless I'm otherwise mistaken. So I thought that had a surprising amount of energy to it and and, and, and took me by surprise. I didn't like Silence at all, um, as as people who listened way back, I think we did a podcast on it when it came out, um, did not like that at all. But also, and then you've got the, the you know, these, these heavyweight cast members who, you know, De Niro and Pacino haven't done incredible work for the past few years. Um, so it was nice to see them work with, you know, working with a, a very talented and established director again um, in a genre that they kind of established and kind of and made their own, in fairness, I would say. Um, if you look at the sort of the Scarface, Carlito's Way, um, Goodfellas, that kind of thing. So, you know, these are seasoned performers in this genre and they're very, very good at what they do. So for me, I was I was quite excited about going into this. I, you know, I can I can see your trepidation in like, oh, here we go. Scorsese's doing another gangster epic. Has he not already done this? Have we not seen this kind of thing before? And in some ways, yes, I guess that, that we have done. But in terms to answer your question, Pete, very, I was very excited going into this. Mm. Yeah, no, that's totally fair enough. And, and I misspoke. I wasn't trying to say that there wasn't much Scorsese output, because, of course, like you correctly point out, uh, we've had Wolf of Wall Street, we've had Silence. Um, there have been these big, you know, there's been some fanfare, significant fanfare around 
those releases and and yeah when you're talking about a man who has crossed over into his 70s and then into his later 70s by this point obviously you're not expecting him to pump out a film or you know every year or every couple of years necessarily um so we like i guess first thing all due respect given we are lucky to have a new martin scorsese film in 2019 for sure it goes without saying i'm a film fan don't come at me uh when i go on to say the things that i'm going to say in the review uh but (laughs) I yeah I I found it hard to be super enthusiastic that doesn't mean that I'm out here saying that there are not masses of positive things about the Irishman because there clearly are um you've got some really really strong performances some really strong writing the fact that the thing runs three and a half hours and at not all times but at certain times just seems to whip by a clip for me um because you can spend time with these people in um you know in a in a sort of a way that maybe a lot of it's nostalgic pleasure, but it's still pleasure nonetheless. Um, that you know, I'm for that. I guess what I'm hesitating to start talking about is the fact that I just found it hard to give a shit about loads of old white men having grievances with each other and then killing each other. And I think, and I think, for all that I could try and make this sound more highfalutin. That's probably my bottom line <laughs> on the movie. Um, but I want to talk about lots of other stuff with it. I mean, you know, kick us off in a better way. Are there specific sort of sections of the movie or like the overarching plot here or like things that you'd pick out? If someone said, oh, three and a half hours, I want to sit down and give three and a half hours. Why should they? Because at, at this film's peak, it's absolutely vintage Scorsese. And there are so... There, for, for me, I don't think it needed to be three and a half hours. I would have had... I probably would have had about 10, 15 minutes out of the middle. I personally think they took probably too long to establish uh, Pacino's Jimmy Hoffa character um, and the film for me dragged a touch in the middle aside from that I thought this was up there with with someone Scorsese's best work in all honesty and the writing I think is fantastic the performances are brilliant like when this film hits it hits big and there's certain exchanges between um, De Niro and Pacino that are just incredible um, I think when they're at the there's a dinner scene where um, Hoffa's getting Hoffa's getting honoured and the two of them are kind of going at each other there and they're trying they're, like their relationship I think is fantastically well done. Uh, Joe Pesci's performance I thought was incredibly incredibly measured for him. Like normally in this kind of film he's a more sort of outlandish louder character, um, sort of more I'd say more overtly aggressive. And here he was just sort of very softly spoken, but like just a man not to be trifled with. Um, and I I really liked. I really like the way that Scorsese takes his time with this. As much as I say, I think it was a touch too long. Scorsese's a, a director that, that demands patience and makes you wait for it. He, he takes time to establish a character. So you genuinely feel like you know the characters here. And I, and I think that's something Scorsese's always been very, very good at is you get a chance to, to really get into these characters' heads. So I really like that element of it. Um, and I just thought the end, the the, fight, the closing scene was absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Um yeah, it's just one of those films. There was, I think, this and Monos this year. I've kind of sat there and gone, okay, if you close the film on this shot now, that will be for me the perfect ending to the film. And an Irishman did it, and Monos, I think, is the only other film that's done that for me this year. So, no, I, I, I can, I don't agree with you. I can fully, I see where you're coming from. I don't agree. With, I don't, I don't agree with you. For me, I, I, I thought it was a fantastic piece of work, just perhaps a touch longer than it needed to be. Um, yeah, I do I mean, have. Be, be yeah, clear though, Paul. I, I don't. But but hold on. Be clear, because you can't really not agree with me. Because what I'm saying is not this no. is a bad movie. What I'm saying is 
I don't care about what's happening in a lot of these, a lot of the running time of the movie. So it's more like that's me saying this is me individually not caring about what's happening in the sequences, as opposed to me saying this is in some way objectively a bad piece of filmmaking, which it clearly isn't. No, no. In in, in fairness, then I'll rephrase that. I don't I don't share mm-hmm. your I don't share that opinion. Shall we say? Yeah. Is is is, is the point I was is, is the point I was trying to come around to. Um, I can see why I can see why no obviously I know you quite well I can I can I see where you're coming from and that to me was probably a concern as much as I was anticipating this going in probably a slight concern going in that have we kind of seen all of this have we seen all of this before um that be you know all of that positive thing being said there there were elements that didn't work for me I've already said I think it ran a little bit too long um can we talk a little bit about the de-aging thing? What did what did you make of that? I mean, I you saw I saw this on the cinema screen, so maybe it was more obvious to me on a cinema screen than it is at home. But I don't think it worked I, I remarkably mean, well the, in places. The sequence that obviously stands out like a, a sore thumb, so sore that you've smashed it with a hammer, is the sequence in which uh, De Niro's character goes and uh, enacts physical justice on a fella who's disrespected his daughter and tries to kick his head in at the side of the road. And it's the face of a sort of 45-year-old man and the physical <laughs> dexterity of like a 90-year-old man, let alone De Niro's actual age. Like, it looks like Johnny Knoxville doing bad grandpa or whatever that <laughs> Uh, it really really badly stood out for me that not all of the de-aging I think is so problematic actually I think when we're in longer shots or when we've got even just like simple two shots where you just kind of get used to it or you just take it as red or it's so ingrained in the story that you know you maybe suspend your disbelief or you don't investigate what's on the screen too closely then I think that there's no problem and I totally understand the reason for using that technology and trying to seamlessly incorporate it into this movie but yes the problem comes when you can't digitally de-age the movements of a person you can do it to the the lines in their face yeah that's that scene in particular for me stood out because i was just like it's the kind of scene that normally and and i think yeah because normally scorsese is a director that certainly has a great grasp of how to use violence in films he doesn't when he does use it it's pretty extreme but he uses when he when he does use it it's pretty extreme but it has an impact and it works and that is the kind of scene that normally in a Scorsese film you'd be like you kind of you'd be like have your fist in your mouth moment and be like oh that's oh god damn it that's a horrible scene but yeah it just looked off like it just is it was bizarre truly bizarre like I wouldn't even say I wasn't sure whether to laugh or not and I was just like okay this this is this is a bit bizarre here um and yeah for me the de-aging I think at times said sometimes works well other times did not work very well at all and I think when this is such a character-driven movie um, and you are just constantly... and I th- if, Yeah, if it is in Marvel, the kind of faces are in the background as much. It's not They're not so character-driven, character-driven movies as this is. When this is such a character-driven movie and you spend so much time with those characters' faces, for me at times, I just found it an unnecessary distraction, to be honest. That I'm just like, look, I'm all for using this technology. I don't think it's ready yet for a film of this nature. Yeah, and how aggrieved would you be if you were Pesci, having to, having refused to take the role time and time and time and time again, eventually caving in, taking on this role, and then in sequences where De Niro's been de-aged and Pesci obviously hasn't, but Joe Pesci looks about 100 years old in comparison. <laughs> Poor guy. He's having to uh, act alongside someone who's going to look so better, so much better in inverted commas in the in the final cut so yeah that that was uh probably a tough pill like um yeah i 
it's a big talking point, obviously. The running time, the de-aging, they're big talking points, and, and rightly so, I think, you know, in a movie like this. But I wanted to raise something else, which is that, um, and I don't know necessarily yeah. which side of the fence I even fall, but there is a sense with me, I suppose, uh, maybe it underpins some of my reservation about the movie sort of going through that. Scorsese could be accused, at least latterly, of um, sort of having his cake and eating it, in the sense that the movie is uh, an indictment of, um, you know, inter gang related uh, intra gang related violence uh, violence between men violence that begets violence and the way in which that violence ends up um, you know bringing people to horrible ends that in no way is meant to promote that violence like the opposite of that I would mm. say very much so at least with the Irishman but just like you had in something like The Wolf of Wall Street it's possible to I don't know, raise an eyebrow a little bit at that because you've got a film director who's made so much of his sort of uh, stock in trade, you know, with films that people, if not the director himself, the audiences of those films so much use as a way of glamorizing a certain lifestyle. So I guess it felt to me, uh, yeah, it, okay, the, the movie is taking to task uh, the way in which these people in a real period of history um, enacted sort of violence against each other, which ultimately doesn't work. And the message that you should take from the movie is not pro-violence, like I say, in any way. It's still a Scorsese gangster movie that that is going to be by certain corners um, sort of held up as 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 a, a template of a sort of way of living I think I don't know I think I felt that about Wolf of Wall Street too uh, yeah I, I think yeah it's difficult uh, I, yeah that's is whether that's a fair criticism or not, I don't know because ultimately uh, yes it's certainly in certain corners will be taken as that film does that mean that's how, how Scorsese intended it not not necessarily um so yeah i don't know where i I stand on that but no like i say to to the contrary i mean he certainly doesn't seem to intend it in that way at all but the point being he still spent an awful lot of his career making films about you know uh horrible nasty white men being horrible and nasty to each other um and and i'm making a big point about the white thing because this is the whitest fucking film in the world but it's a historical period. I get that. I'm being a snowflake. I'm triggered, whatever. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, it, all, but... it, it was hard to sort of um, escape that, I guess. But then, you know, I want to sort of come back also on my own criticism because I have to think about these things when I'm thinking, you know, I, I really admire this film director. You know, it, it, he may not be one of my now favourite film directors working necessarily, but I really admire him a great deal and I have a lot of love for previous work that he's done. And then I was thinking about, you know, things in this movie that stand out as well, like the amount of time he devotes to, particularly De Niro, but characters in general, travelling. Travelling. He's in a car. He's in a car for a long time. He's on a flight. He's on the flight. He's out the flight. He's in another car. And so much of that could have been cut down. But then Mm. I think, you know, I love the movie The Brown Bunny, where Vincent Gallo basically rides around on a motorbike and mopes and is quite emo for a bit and gets a blowjob. Uh, I love that movie and I'll defend it to the hilt. So it's not per se the things that he does. I think it's just for me, like I said at the outset, maybe I found it really hard for whatever reason to totally care about the events in this world. And, and yeah. that's on me. Like I say, I'm not I'm not even trying to convince anybody else that I'm right. I just that, that I have to be honest. No, and I, I can see where you're coming from. And it is is that because you've seen him do this kind of thing before or is that because it's I feel like I've seen old him... white men? Yeah, I, I mean, a bit a bit of both, I guess. Like I've, I feel like I've sort of seen him do this slightly better, uh, in inverted mm. commas, at least from my vantage point. And, and maybe, yeah, maybe that is part of it because 
we grew up, you know, re-watching uh, some of the great Scorsese stuff, uh, maybe it just feels like the world's moved on and those films still exist and are still beloved and the world's moved on and maybe the place that we're in now, it didn't feel to me crucial to have Scorsese's input. Having said that, who am I? I mean, sure, <laughs> talented filmmakers keep making films. You know, it, it. I would never, never fight against that. I just, I just don't have to care that much. I guess. Um, no, absolutely not. No, and no, I'm in no, a massive no, no, minority. No. I mean, it's a, it's a 94 Metascore, but I, I can't help but feel that there's a certain quotient of the reviews of the movie that are, that would have given the movie a really high rating, almost regardless of its contents. It feels like to me. It's yeah, good... and I think uh, it, yeah, he certainly is one of those directors, and I uh, I would argue that with Silence, to be honest, because I think well, yeah, I really really did not get on well with Silence, so I would argue the same thing that yeah, there is probably there is probably a subset of critics out there will just it's Martin Scorsese will give it a, a good score. I personally, I think Scorsese is is you know as you've alluded to, Scorsese is an incredible director, and I think when this film is firing all cylinders, for me for the most part, it is um, it is up there with with Pete Scorsese. Um, it's not uh, it, when it's firing all cylinders; it doesn't always fire on all cylinders. I would give you, I would give you certainly certainly agree on that basis. But for me, when it works, it works incredibly well, and is one of certainly the one of the most cinematic films I think I've I've seen this year. So. Yeah, um, it's always nice to it's always nice to uh, to disagree amicably, shall we say? But yeah. and, and that's well, that's a, a sort of prescient point as well. You say it's one of the most cinematic films of the year because, of course, as you said at the outset, you saw it in the cinema and I saw it on the mm. small screen. And it, it, it's certainly interesting to me that, on the one hand, you know, Netflix allowed this film to be made. It also allowed for Scorsese to bring his full vision to the screen, which is mm. fully three and a half hours, as we've discussed. Um, but then the negatives, I guess, that you'd see about something like that are maybe it leaves this thing short of an edit or two, which has been mentioned. Um, and also the fact that a vast majority of people who see the movie will see it on a smaller screen, if not a small screen entirely. So maybe some of the uh, cinematic nature of the movie is going to be lost. And some of that stuff is stuff that you clearly appreciated about it. When I watch it at home on like a 40 inch TV or whatever, it's not going to look like it does you know, cast across a cinema screen in a, in a darkened room. So I can appreciate as well that that could be a factor here. And I think also, possibly on that one, and this is self-criticism, although I just didn't have the opportunity to see it at a cinema, when you're in the cinema, you are forced in the dark to drink in whatever's on the screen, right? When yeah. you're at home, there is, no matter how much people might protest against this, there is an inclination to slightly lose focus or to talk across a movie or to glance at something else, to not always give something your full attention. And I suppose if I thought if I wanted to give my absolute best shot at appreciating everything that this movie has to offer, I would have wanted to see it in a cinema and not on a Netflix uh, sort of platform. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. That's a fair comment. But yeah, anyway, that was uh, The Irishman. Uh, and also, don't come at Pete too much because he's allowed an opinion. <laughs> yeah, honestly, mate, I, don't, I do not care. Like, the, the, the point being, as I've said, as I've tried to make clear and reiterate, I've almost got very little critically to say about the movie other than sort of platitudes about how great Scorsese is a director, which we already know and I'm adding nothing. Uh, and some of the performances are really, really strong. Stephen Graham's not even been mentioned. He's really good in this. But like... Mm, yeah, absolutely. But, but my point more is that 
there are going to be films that just don't have you on the hook. You don't yeah, care absolutely. about living in the world or, you know, you just don't have a massively strong opinion one way or the other. And I think that is, for good or bad, that is uh, case in point here with The Irishman. For me, absolutely loved it. Um, will be, yeah, with, well, yeah, I did. I loved it with some reservations. Whether it be on my top 10 of the year list or not, we will find out uh, in the next week or so, I would have thought. Talking um, lists, Paul, talking yes. lists. Uh, we have a list to do and that list uh, with some trepidation will be the top five action films of this year of our lord 2019 uh, we will be back with that list right after this short break Yeah, leading up to the end of the year, we've been doing some end of year film lists, as Pete just said before the thing, and I've just repeated exactly what he said. So we'll get to it. This is top five action films of uh, 2019. Um, we kind of, before we came on air, we kind of just went, oh, I'm very excited to do this top five list. And then we kind of realised that both of us had taken quite a while uh, to put this top five list together. Um, I don't think it's been a great year for action films or blockbuster cinema, in which case there's, there's some examples of in this list. Uh, at all Pete and certainly some of the films in this list I can't say that I wholeheartedly loved uh, or massively engaged with all of the films on this list um, Pete where did you stand you, I think you shared yeah, a similar it's not been good man process. it's not been good um, at, at the very least at this time of year when looking back on action films you would grasp at something like the latest Fast and Furious but of course this year we didn't have one it essentially didn't have one because we had a spin-off in the, the form of Hobbs and Shaw which I don't think I'm spoiling the list by saying maybe hasn't troubled these lists uh because it was pap uh, so yeah it, it's not been vintage for sure there are probably films that have been missed well they're definitely going to be films that we've missed here that we haven't got round to that we haven't seen uh we've got an awful lot to cover during the course of any one year so we've done our best to whip together what we think is our most representative top five in terms of at least films that we can defend if people say that absolutely everything in action cinema this year has been trash uh i don't think that's 100 percent the case but yeah as you said, not not a classic year, not the greatest year, but we're going to inject this with enthusiasm nonetheless. What have you got at number five, Paul, on this action shortlist? So, yeah, as you said, Pete, we are going to bring some enthusiasm to this, even though we don't think necessarily it's been a bumper year for these films, for sure. Um, yeah, so number five for me is uh, JC Trandor's directorial effort, uh, Triple Frontier, written by Mark Bowl, who did some work on... Um, Zero Dark Thirty. Um, this stars Ben Affleck, Oscar Isaac, Charlie Hunnam. So that director and that cast had me pretty excited for this, I'll be honest. Um, and JC Chandor has probably turned his hand to more drama um, than action in the past. Um, loyalties are tested when five friends and former Special Forces operatives reunite to take down a South American drug lord uh, and lease in a chain of unintended consequences. Um, yeah, I didn't love all of this film. I didn't think the pacing was necessarily great and I think it's possibly a little bit long-winded towards the end. However, when this does hit, I think the action set pieces here were superb and I think there was enough enough to keep this entertaining from start to finish for me um although as, as you know as i said going in certainly not up there with with vintage action films um but it was an interesting departure from jc chandor for sure and the cast are very enjoyable in it uh, so that is my number five uh, triple frontier which i believe is still streaming on netflix at the moment actually if people are interested in seeing it so yeah 
Yeah, they've been plugging that movie hard since it <laughs> released. Uh, and number five for me, a film, again, that I can definitely pick holes in because a lot of it doesn't really work. But um, it is Robert Rodriguez's movie, Alita Battle Angel, which I feel like I kind of got uh, super hyped about loads of times on the show and it seemed like eventually it was going to be released. It would be really great. And a big part of my enthusiasm was fueled by the casting of Rosa Salazar in the leading role because there's this indie movie, Night Owls, that I've definitely mentioned on the show that's really good and you should watch which she's in this movie elite battle angel is not really good but there's definitely stuff to like i mean i think robert rodriguez even on his worst day makes things that i find entertaining so the film is entertaining it's just that at times it drags at times it delivers less bang for the buck than I was hoping for, particularly on the big screen and watching it the first time round. Uh, you've got Christoph Waltz in this thing uh, having a good time. You've got uh, Jennifer Connelly's Tear Ducts, which is something I'm always there for. Um, yeah, I think Rosa Salazar did good work. I hope that she'll get more in terms of like action opportunities coming out. I mean, she's obviously done Scorch Trials and, and whatever that's called, that whole series that I've never bothered to watch. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's kind of a um, slick, futuristic uh, sheen to Alita Battle Angel that I can totally get behind. I just wish it had more totally sort of fulfilled my expectations. And that's why it's not higher on the list. I thought when I was looking at 2019 that this would be right up there with like my favourite action movies of the year. To be honest, it's limped in at number five and barely got there. Like it had to, to push a couple of things out of contention. So yeah, that's my number five, Alita Battle Angel. Uh, check it out if you haven't. It's worth your time. It's just a flawed piece of work, I would say. Paul, what have you got number four? Uh, number four, I've got the fairly recently released Terminator Dark Fate, um, the which seems to be, which seems looks like it will be absolutely be the final Terminator film by the fact it's tanked once again at the box office. Um, this is Deadpool director Tim Miller, also story and produced by James Cameron, much like your battle angel actually uh, weirdly enough uh, starring Linda Hamilton Arnold Schwarzenegger Mackenzie Davies um, this uh, retcons the series and ignores Terminator 3 uh, Terminator Salvation and Terminator Genesis and picks up as a direct sequel to Terminator 2 um, again as I've said it's not without its flaws um, for sure it's clumsy in places as I think you mentioned uh, when we reviewed it not all of the performances are great but Mackenzie Davis is brilliant I think in this um, and looks every bit the action the action hero for sure um, slight overuse of CGI definitely the film is very very dark throughout um, doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily anywhere near meet the same bar as the earlier films but I still had fun with this as a throwaway sci-fi action film with Terminators in it I'd still had a, mostly a good time with this I think um, and the set pieces are, are exciting and I've seen worse films at the cinema this year than this one <laughs> and and lest, lest we forget Arnold Schwarzenegger as a window coverings salesman um, yes, is worth yeah. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the couple of hours in and of itself this is also yeah. my number four incidentally uh, we didn't really compare lists before we did this but yeah the reason it made it to the list is basically the stuff you said Paul like it's a Terminator movie parts of it are entertaining you've brought this new uh, sort of action breakout in Mackenzie Davis into the mix and she like you say uh, quite rightly is really really good um, and I can sort of forgive the fact that Linda Hamilton in my opinion is terrible in the movie uh, for the fact that Mackenzie Davis is like a counterbalance to that uh, yeah and, and like 
it's one of those, isn't it, where you feel so conflicted because you both feel like uh, you want them to just stop, just stop doing this and stop sort of tarnishing the reputation of one of the things I love most from my childhood. But at the same yeah. time, when it comes back, you feel like this is one of the things I love most from my childhood. So <laughs> there are things about it that I'm bound to absolutely love. So, yeah, we, I mean, go back to the episode where we gave it a full review to get full thoughts. But there is enough in Terminator Dark, Dark Fate for fans of the franchise, I think, to feel as though it was maybe just about worth the outing if not much more and yeah maybe if this is the end then uh at least we got some sparkle in the last installment if not a whole load that is also then my number four terminator dark fate paul what have you got number three uh, godzilla king of monsters i hear everyone groan uh it's not a very good film i'm gonna throw that out there i know it's not a very good film when i did the podcast earlier in the year about godzilla king of monsters i admitted as much that it's not a very good film but it's one that I absolutely loved every shitty second of. Um, I, d I wanted more monsters. We got more monsters. Um, I wanted to see King Ghidorah on the big screen. Like Godzilla um, is some of my childhood, the absolute childhood favourites. I've just had a, a lavish Blu-ray box set turn up um, with the 15 Godzilla films in that I'm very excited to get to. I love Godzilla. I love the character. And I had so much fun with King of Monsters. It was like being a 12-year-old boy again in the cinema screen. I thought the set pieces looked incredible, if a little dark. Uh, the monster fights didn't let me down. They were absolutely epic. And we got to see, yeah, some incredible monster-on-monster -monster action on the big screen. And I had a great time with it uh, at the cinema. I can't face watching it a second time because the faults will probably be more glaringly obvious. Uh, but I'll probably get to it again. But yeah, Godzilla King of Monsters, in terms of just sheer cinematic uh joy um godzilla king of monsters was was up there for me in terms of in terms of big things knocking the shit out of other big things and lots of things exploding i had a good time with it it's not a good film but i really enjoyed it godzilla king of monsters is my number three yeah i mean the way you feel about big things knocking the shit out of other big things is kind of the way i feel about shark movies and that's why the least shit <laughs> shark movie of the year has made it to number three on my list this is 47 meters down uncaged uh yeah it's better than the meg Come at me. Uh, yeah, the, the, the movie, again, like you were saying on the lead-in, and it feels like an emergent theme on this countdown, it's not a totally a good movie, but what you want with your shark movie is you want a fun setup. And what we've got here is four young female divers, well, divers of sorts, casual divers, who have varying levels of skill. Some of them are going to get picked off early. Some will have the, the ability to stay alive a little bit longer. And they go not just out into the ocean, not cage diving, this time like in the uh, in the first movie in this maybe it's a franchise now uh, instead they go investigating underwater caves and ruins um, and it you know seems like a great idea to go and investigate underwater caves and ruins where there's known shark activity and that's what they go and do uh, th there was just enough man like you were saying about the previous uh, Godzilla movie there's just enough here that if you like yourself a, a sort of a slasher movie where the slasher is replaced with the teeth of a shark then 47 meters down uncaged is got you covered um there are some cool deaths there are some cool near deaths and escapes uh it's all shot in a fairly effective way i thought by uh, johannes roberts the director here and you know not every year can give you the shallows or jaws or something <laughs> of superior quality so you've got to take the crumbs that you get and the crumbs that i got this year were this it was this movie and so it made my number three even though the current meta score is a whopping 43 from a 100. Paul, what have you got at number two? 
uh, I don't know if you remember this coming out or aware that this came out at all this year. Uh, this is Marvel's Avengers Endgame, um, the close of the Infinity uh, Gauntlet or Infinity Stones uh, series of Marvel films. Um, yeah, I, I, everyone saw this, I imagine, and I'm sure it's probably quite high. Empire, it was number one film on Empire's Films of the Year. Yes, what a surprise. Um, I didn't love all of Endgame, I have to say, but the, for me, and I do prefer Infinity War, the film that preceded it, I think it's a much better film. I think the pacing is much better. I thought the time travel was, was quite clumsy in this. I didn't think it was always the most engaging of films, but my God, the second hour was pure joy. Uh, the set pieces were n nothing short of incredible. I've never seen such a scale of sort of sci-fi battles on the big is on the big screen as they as they threw in here and i think it, it genuinely landed an emotional close for some pretty big marvel characters um the way they dealt with captain america i thought was took me pleasantly by surprise um and tony stark's death i thought was was really really well done so i much prefer the second half to the first but i think endgame overall is is a good film um although not quite the match of infinity war but yeah avengers endgame is my number two action film of 2019 nice. uh yeah i i I tried man i went and watched clips and trailers and stuff and i was like <laughs> avengers endgame has got to make it into at least a top five and i just couldn't do it i just couldn't do it and and like you said uh infinity war maybe if we were doing the same list but uh, uh, you know when was that two years ago a year ago last year right last year. then probably it almost certainly would have yeah. made the top five but this one didn't uh what i've got instead at number two is a movie that i believe is still streaming on netflix and it's uh you know a little bit underseen i would say this is fury which i popcorn reviewed at, at minimum on this show um it is a vietnamese action movie um uh, starring an actress called veronica ngo who it plays a mother whose daughter is kidnapped so basically it is like taken except uh, the special set of skills is just um wild kung fu action and kicking fools into the river, which was a thing I particularly enjoyed about it. Uh, it does a really good job of utilising the beauty of the Vietnamese uh, countryside environment, I think. It's not the best um, uh, example of its kind, but in a year so bereft, uh, so devoid of great action movies to be fair i'm yet to see triple threat which i know is on netflix and i should have seen which is another you know kick punch uh kung fu movie that that mm. has got reasonable reviews yeah i've read good things about triple threat actually i haven't seen it yet either so yeah that that might bother a list i guess yeah i, I thought about either, watching so. it before this and then i just got so depressed looking at the paucity of good selections that i thought you know what i'm not going to do it to myself just in case it's disappointing as well so fury's made it all the way to number two even though um i would say that there are you know start with on back or further back from that um, if you want really great examples of this kind but Veronica Ungo's really game uh, it's uh, Lee Van Kiet the director who's done I think quite effective work here in terms of bringing Vietnamese action cinema to a wider audience it's not an area of the cinematic universe that is necessarily overpopulated with great work so hopefully there'll be the budgets and opportunities to make more movies in Vietnam and I enjoyed this one um, for all its flaws uh, Fury is a good movie that is my number two and fury by the way is spelled f-u-r-i-e just in case anyone has difficulty finding it it's not the brad pitt tank movie uh what have you got then paul okay. at number one i suppose uh john wick three parabellum um yeah if you listen to my review at the time i have some problems with this film as a whole i kind of wanted this to be the end of the john wick series because at some point they're going to make a bad one so i wasn't totally satisfied with the direction the story took although i've only seen it the once so i'll be intrigued to see it a second time and see where i go with the story 
But whatever issue, whatever slight gropes I had with the story, my God, the fight scenes in this are once again nothing short of jaw-droppingly incredible. Like the scene where he just repeatedly gets smashed through glass cabinets is very, very funny. Um, Keanu Reeves is, you know, not clearly not a man to be trifled with because he trains a lot for these films. Um, yeah, maybe you've seen one John Wick film too many. Maybe you haven't. I, I hopefully, hopefully the next one won't be it. Um, but for me. Yeah, just the fight scenes and the choreography in this is kind of second to none in anything I've seen this year. I haven't seen this Fury that you've been talking about, so maybe maybe Fury will trump it in terms of in terms of fight choreography. I love the fact that we've still got the original director on board, start Chad Skowalski, um, and that he was a stuntman and fight choreographer before he went into directing. You can tell um, the action scenes in this are is yeah second to none. The film looks great. I have a great time with John Wick films, uh, and that is why John Wick John Wick three. Colon Parabellum, for whatever reason, uh, is my number one action film of 2019. Yeah, it's kind of outlandish that it's not on my top five, because if you go on pure fight choreography alone, I reckon it's it's number one. Um, I think it's, you know, connecting back to the, the stuff that people probably think is drivel that I was saying about the Irishman, uh, I just kind of didn't, I just got bored of the world. I got bored of the world in, in John Wick Part 3 and yeah. I thought, yeah, like you said, maybe it was just one movie too many and maybe I want to more fondly remember the first movie and not, you know, water it down with with more sequels. But no, I totally get it. I mean, some of the action work in those movies is is almost peerless, at least these days. Um, number yeah. one for me, yeah, as if I'm going to come at you for picking that one and then I'm going to say that my number one action film of the year is Triple Frontier, a movie that we both <laughs> kind of pulled apart on this podcast, I think, when we when we saw it for various reasons. Uh, I would say it's almost been enough in a year as limp action-wise as this one that the director of this movie, JC Chandor, has previously made Margin Call All Is Lost in a Violent Year and has so much credit in the bank with me that I can sort <laughs> of try to believe that this is a better movie that was somehow somehow like hampered by interference or constraints or something because surely the same film director who's made those three films couldn't make something that sort of uh that sort of stumbled quite as badly as this one did at times <laughs> but like you said when you mentioned it as your number five when you've got this basic um setup of these guys stealing all the money that they steal and then trying to transport that money over um the mountains in a light aircraft and running into so much trouble because the money itself weighs them down so much and you think i see what you do sir you just keep making these beautiful beautiful pieces of imagery imagery that tell us an awful lot about the current state of the world and the financial crisis so from that point of view i applaud you jc chandle and the way that he pulled it off here shows that i think uh, chandle has chops as an action director i just don't think this was the thing you know as much as i'm putting this as my number one action movie yeah, yeah <laughs> i understand the absurdity of what i'm saying but i think that a, a filmmaker as gifted as that showing that he has some skills in a slightly new area let's be fair when you see the previous work that he's done i guess the closest you can come is some of the there's a couple of chase sequences in a most violent year i suppose um yeah that made me excited maybe for him doing more in the future of this kind of ilk but with someone like jc chandle he's always gonna be so fixated on the the writing of a story that says more than just the mm. events in in its own sequences of action that that maybe he's never going to make the sort of um 
you know, blow your socks off action movie that that I'm talking about here and that would top a chart like this. Although somehow in an inexplicably this one's got there. So like I say, a lot of it sort of <laughs> built up credit over time. Some of it is the fact that the bits that if you could just cut the bits that are the best out of Triple Frontier, oh the bits that work in it are phenomenally good. without without a phenomenally doubt. Yeah, good. Yeah. Like like yeah. first Sicario the level Rob- of like phenomenally yeah. good. It's just some of the stuff around it and some of the denouement of the movie just kind of drags on and feels a bit lame. Um, But I liked it. I just thought that I would love it. I remember the day that this came out on Netflix and being like, it's one of those where you get up like a giddy kid and I'm like, right, I'm watching it at nine in the morning or, or <laughs> 9.30 or whatever. Whenever the soonest opportunity with a cup of coffee and my breakfast, I was like, right, the new JC Chandler's out. Let's go. And then coming out to do the review for the show, yeah, it's not it's not perfect by a long stretch. But yeah, uh, Triple Frontier still made number one for me. Nice. Uh, which pretty much brings us to the end of the show, apart from uh, to pay credit to things that we are doing outside. Now, let's, let's just run down, our, in fact, before we do that, let's run down our top fives again briefly. So uh, at number five for me was Triple Frontier, which we've just discussed. At number four, we had Terminator Dark Fate. At number three, Godzilla King of Monsters. At number two, Avengers Endgame. And number one, John Wick 3. Uh, Pete, remind listeners at home of your top five action films of 2019. Yep. Number five was Alita Battle Angel from Robert Rodriguez with uh, Rosa Salazar in lead role. And that's why I was jazzed. Uh, Terminator Dark Fate was also my number four matching with Paul there. 47 Meters Down, Uncaged was number three. Uh, Fury from uh, Vietnam was number two. Uh, Sorry, the movie's called Fury. It's not called Fury from Vietnam, but it's a Vietnamese action movie. And then at number one, somewhat against my better judgment, was uh, JC Chandler's movie Triple Frontier. So you said, Paul, we always run crazy credits at the end of the show as if the film is finished and the credits are running across the screen and we're going to give credit to something doesn't have to be from the world of film but something that has impressed you over the last sort of seven days or in this case more like 14 days because we had a week off what have you gone for this week uh the hbo series watchman um i did not expect to like this i did not expect this to be very good i did not expect it to be a sequel set for almost 30 years after the events of the original comic um it's it is really rather good um it's very very cleverly done um how they're bringing back the old characters i think is great the the themes um around sort of racial rep what's what's the word i'm looking for reputations that's not the word i'm looking for you know where i'm coming from um i think reparations reparations yeah the theme around racial reparation payments from uh, a government led by robert redford uh with the president robert redford um it's a brilliant idea it's really really well executed um the performances i think are fantastic and the writing is is really really good on it um i'm just hoping damon lindelof doesn't do what damon lindelof does which is ask too many questions and never answer any of them but we shall see uh but so far on episode three it's really really good um and i can't really recommend it highly enough so that's uh, what HBO's Watchmen now streaming on Now TV uh, in the UK. Nice. Um, for me, it's one that is streaming currently on Netflix, and that is the movies that made us. This is uh, very much worth the time. The movies that made us is a short sort of form, I think four episodes per season, uh, documentary series, very um, welcoming and sort of user friendly and stuff. Uh, it covers each episode of this this show covers a particular classic movie. So in the first series that has been released just recently, we've got um, Die Hard, Dirty Dancing, Home Alone and Ghostbusters. 
And in each, I think they're about hour long, each episode, in each hour long episode, what you get is a, a kind of potted behind the scenes story or set of stories about what went into the production of each movie and the kind of funnier stories or maybe less well-known trivia about hiccups and difficulties and problems on set and all that kind of good stuff that would usually be exiled to, you know, Blu-ray and DVD extras, mm. but here is brought very much into the mainstream because it's out there on Netflix. Uh, Learning things like, for example, did you know that Home Alone was shot uh, essentially in a school gymnasium? I did not know that. How cool is that? All, all yeah. the <laughs> all the interiors in in Home Alone. So yeah, if if you're into that kind of movie trivia stuff, which a lot of people who'd listen to this or you know take an interest in movies would be, it's worth it. There's also a series called um, The Toys That Made Us. I've seen bits at of the that, moment. Which definitely is... seen the Transformers one. You'd be unsurprised to learn, but <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So it's a bit of like a nostalgia kick, and you know some of the movies or some of the toys will be more or less interesting to different viewers but like both series are worth worth their time and particularly i think for fans of this show uh, or listeners to this show i should say uh, fans of movies the the movies that made us is the one that i would point you towards nice uh, well that pretty much brings us to the end of the show not pretty much it does bring us to the end of the show um, all that remains to be said is join us next week where we'll be talking about marriage story and counting down our top five comedies uh, also at some point next week i think we'll be recording our films of the decade episode which i keep teasing on twitter it is coming it's just proving quite a tough list to put together it keeps changing and at some point i just need to commit to it put pen to paper and that will be my list so we're going to be recording that show uh, next week and then there will be a films of the year show coming but i'm hope i'm hoping that star wars will be on there so um which is out next week actually so we'll, we, we will get there with our top fives of the year for sure um although i am aware that we are running out of time for those but we will bring you what we can for sure um so yeah b- yeah before we go uh, find us on social media at strangers cinema on twitter strangers in the cinema on facebook and instagram and if you want to drop us an email strangers in the cinema at gmail.com uh thanks for listening and hopefully hear you next week shut up and sit down